Hey everyone, tonight we're back with another tragic murder mystery from the woods. This one has it all, death, violence, and corruption. So you know, viewer discretion is advised. We'll be discussing a triple homicide from 1960 where the suspected killer was ultimately cleared of all charges after many years of declaring his innocence. There's police corruption, the mishandling of evidence, conspiracy theories, and a few puzzling inconsistencies. Where did all of this occur, you ask? Well, that would be the Starved Rock State Park. It's located along the Illinois River in LaSalle County and is considered one of the state's most beautiful locations. This vast stretch of land covers over 2,300 acres and it became an official state park in 1911. Its popular attractions feature waterfalls, 13 miles of trails, and 18 canyons with walls made of moss-covered St. Peter sandstone formed by glacial meltwater. According to the park's website, humans have inhabited the area since way back to 8,000 BC, and its name is derived from a Native American legend of injustice and retribution. Chief Pontiac of the Ottawa tribe was slain by a rival tribe's warrior while attending a council meeting. Multiple battles followed and other tribes became involved. The Potawatomi were allies of the Ottawa, and during one particular battle, they found themselves seeking refuge atop the 120-foot sandstone butte we now call Starved Rock. We call it that because the Potawatomi were instantly surrounded. They remained trapped until each succumbed to a slow, painful death from starvation. But enough about that. Let's get into this story that's been 60 years in the making. First, a little bit about our victims. Francis Murphy... Mildred Lindquist and Lillian Uting, the three women, were close friends, all married to successful Chicago businessmen and heavily involved in their local Presbyterian church. They supported one another through life's hardships, such as when Lillian was nursing her husband back to health after a heart attack. Though entering their later years, they were all physically fit and healthy for their ages. It was in March of 1960 when they decided to take a three-day girls' trip to Starved Rock State Park, but sadly it was a trip they would never return from. They booked two hotel rooms upon arrival, dropped off their luggage, and went to the dining room for lunch. They were noticeably in good spirits and expressed to the staff how happy they were with the accommodations, all the while completely unaware of the devastating blow soon to come or the lasting effects it would have on their community. Deciding the snow was light enough to be easily traversed, the three ladies set out for a quick hike towards St. Louis Canyon with cameras in hand. They wound their way through ravines and 20-foot drops while traveling through the slippery, narrow canyon trail until it finally arrived at the end, which was marked by an 80-foot wall on three sides. This area is only one mile away from their accommodations, but it was days later before searchers finally reached their remains. The first sign of something gravely amiss was when Lillian Uting failed to call her husband as planned. George Uting tried to contact his wife at the lodge only to be told that she was unavailable, and utterly unaware of Lillian's actual situation, he simply went to sleep. The following morning was a Tuesday and he tried again, only to be told she was busy. Again, no alarm bells were rung and a message was left on Lillian's door, the exact wording of which is unknown. George called the other husbands to update them on the situation, but he didn't yet see the reason to call authorities. On Wednesday, he tried again, this time pushing for the employee to check the women's room, and sure enough, there was not a single sign of them. Their beds were unmade, and their luggage was still there. 
clearly a distressing sign. By this point, the women had been missing for over 40 hours, and due to police continuously brushing aside concerns from the worried husbands, eight more hours would pass before the search would actually begin. Tragically, the search party would quickly discover the bodies of all three women lying side by side in St. Louis Canyon. Two had their wrist bound with twine and their bruised legs spread. The binoculars were broken, the camera was dented, and four inches of snow had obliterated any tracks that may have been left behind. The only other clue seemed to be a bloodied yard-long log left nearby. The weather had considerably worsened as additional snow and ice covered the already narrow trails, making gathering evidence all the more difficult. Six inches of snow coated the ground where the remains lay, and to reach them, authorities were forced to bring in heavy tanks of liquid petroleum gas to burn away the top layer of snow very slowly. Though there was a risk of damaging vital evidence, it was a risk they deemed worth taking. Sources vary on what was found there. But among the evidence found beneath the snow was a piece of tin foil and bloodstains. Though, don't forget, this was 1960, so that means much less than it would today. The twine used on the two victims was the same as the one found in the lodge's kitchen, and Frances was the only one with additional binds around her ankles. There are differing accounts of how many were assaulted, but these two also had clothing left askew to indicate the worst. Lillian and Mildred had removed their underwear and pants, while all three women's clothing was damaged, and their coats were placed between their legs. While the evidence was collected at the scene, other investigators began checking up on the known sex offenders in the area, though it didn't take them very far. It would be months before an arrest was made. After pathologists had state crime lab officials carefully removed the bodies, the autopsies occurred at the Hulse Funeral Home in Ottawa. Each was covered in blood. Their skulls were smashed and their faces were considerably bruised. The bloody tree stump was the suspected murder weapon, as the fatal injuries were made through blunt force trauma to the head. Eight pieces of evidence were found, and we'll be discussing those a little bit more. For now, just know the many images on Mrs. Murphy's camera were processed, but there was no sign of their murderer. Just three lovely women enjoying a seemingly wonderful vacation. The motive behind the brutal attack was unclear. Robbery was thought to be a possibility, however it was disregarded when the women's valuables were discovered with the bodies. On the surface, Chester Wegger seems like a perfect criminal to connect with in this case. At the time of the murders, he was 21 years old with a wife and two kids. Plus, he had a bad boy image straight out of the 1950s. Though he worked as a dishwasher at the Starred Rock Lodge for a time, some sources have differing accounts as to whether he was still employed there at the time of the murders, or if he was currently working in the family business, painting with his father. What drew attention to him were the two prior incidents in which he was suspected of sexual assault. The first instance occurred when Wegger was 12, and the victim was an 8-year-old girl. The second incident happened the previous year in 1959. In this latter case, not only was he later identified by the victim and her boyfriend, the crime occurred remarkably close to the site of our current murders. When questioning the suspect's colleagues, police learned Wegger came to work with a fresh scratch mark on his face. The source of the scratches were unknown, but Wegger insisted they were from shaving. As for his whereabouts at the time of the murders, he claimed to be writing letters in his basement, an impossible alibi to confirm, but also a contradiction to his last story. 
It would also seem he failed the polygraph, but let's keep in mind that those aren't foolproof. While these do sound like legitimate causes for suspicion, we must remember the authorities were under considerable pressure to find the killer. This was a very high-profile case at the time. Not only were three prominent women brutally murdered, the town was terrified. When things like this happen in smaller communities, it affects everyone. Even the economy suffers. With all of these factors in place combined with the era, I mean, Miranda warnings weren't even a thing yet, there's room for consideration. Is Wegger a cold-blooded killer or the victim of a corrupt police force eager to solve a crime? Well, it should be known that he always maintained his innocence. He maintained it for weeks before enduring an interrogation that lasted for over 24 hours. Throughout his extended period of questioning, Wegger was supposedly threatened with electric chair, a gun, and of course, this in addition to his claims of being beaten during his initial arrest didn't help him at all. Still, after his life felt threatened, he signed a confession, claiming responsibility for the deaths of the three women in the robbery gone wrong. Then, almost immediately after, he formally recanted the confession. Unfortunately, we can't see the interrogation for ourselves to know the truth. It seems all we'll ever really have is hearsay, so we better hear it all. Some sources also mention this confession involved Wegger taking police to the crime scene and reenacting the murders. Did the officers also force him to write that he saw a red and white plane fly overhead after killing the women? Because flight records did indicate this to be a true statement. It's also true that Wegger's jacket had human blood splatter on it. Further, if you recall his original alibi, there were no witnesses to corroborate him being in his home in the basement. Perhaps that's why his story changed repeatedly. The only detail to remain constant was his innocence. Eventually, he produced a more substantial alibi. He claimed to be getting a haircut at the time of the murders, which others did attest to. While these discrepancies seem incredibly convenient, we should also remember this was several years after the actual events occurred and memories are fragile. Regardless of these loose ends, Wegger's claims of innocence fell on deaf ears, and he was still convicted, not just for the deaths of Mildred Lindquist or Francis Murphy. On March 3, 1961, Chester Wegger was found guilty for the murder of Lillian Uting, and he was sentenced to life in prison a month later on April 3rd, thanks to one lone juror. Wegger was also spared the death penalty despite the popular opinion thinking that he should get it. This left many upset that he would eventually be eligible for parole. Meanwhile, he served his time at the Illinois State Penitentiary and Pickneyville Correctional Center as one of their longest serving inmates in history. Over the course of his sentence, he was ultimately denied parole more than 20 times before it was finally granted in November 2019. It wasn't denied due to poor behavior or anything like that, but because he refused to show remorse and maintained his innocence for the duration of his sentence. When the Illinois Prisoner Review Board granted Wager's parole with a 9-4 vote, his family cried tears of relief. Those who voted for his relief noted Wager's age, fragile health, lengthy incarceration, and lack of disciplinary action during his sentence. After the decision was announced, one of the victim's granddaughters crossed the crowded Springfield board office with tears. She embraced Wager's younger sister, Mary Pruitt, stating she always believed in her brother's innocence. Contrastly, Diane Uting, the granddaughter of Lillian, also present that day, and she urged the board to keep Wager incarcerated but was not without sympathy for the man's family. 
Believe it or not, the two families spent much time together throughout the legal process and became somewhat of friends. At the hearing, Diane said, while we may not agree with the decision, we certainly respect it. Per the Attorney General's request, Wager was held for an additional 90 days after being granted parole. This was to provide time for an evaluation under the state's sexually violent persons law. This allows for civil commitment if a person is deemed too dangerous to be set free. But in Wager's instance, they did not believe that to be the case and he was released in February 2020. He was then sent to St. Leonard's house in Chicago, a facility where elderly former inmates can receive help becoming reaccustomed to life outside. Almost immediately upon his release, Wager was placed on a speakerphone with the press where he was quoted as saying, I'm happy. I'm happy just to get out, you know? Tell everybody that I said thank you. In a recent Rolling Stones article, a now 83-year-old Wager is quoted as saying, I'm innocent. I was innocent. I want to be vacated. He stayed with his sister and her husband in LaSalle, Illinois. Only one juror was still living at the time of his release a 95-year-old who feared being named. She firmly believed Wager was guilty and may seek revenge on her. Though she has passed away since, sometime in 2016, the lone juror who refused to vote for the death penalty openly admitted to regretting her verdict of guilty. Now, if Wager's proclamations of innocence were all we had to go on, we wouldn't be putting much consideration into this theory. But there are actually some legitimate concerns to discuss. Do you remember those eight pieces of evidence I mentioned? Andy Hale, Wager's attorney, requested they be re-examined with modern technology. According to a 2022 Rolling Stones article, the defense team first tried this in 2004 but withdrew their motion upon learning evidence had been stored improperly and potentially was corrupted. In 2007, they petitioned the governor for clemency, but you won't be surprised to hear that it was denied. It was only recently they decided to try again. Though initially denied at first, the team's second attempt was approved and the results were tremendous. Despite prosecutors having previously described the evidence as a complete mess, Hale was surprised to find everything properly stored and neatly labeled. Unfortunately, only one item was actually able to be tested for reliable results, but it was still a massive break in the case. The hair found on one of the women's gloves was from a male, and it was not Wager. Hale hopes this will be enough to make his case directly to the state's attorney and receive permission to compare the new DNA analysis to the CODIS database. If a new match could be found, this case may have a different resolution shortly. By now, you may be wondering who else could or would be able to subdue and murder these three healthy women. And that's where this case gets even trickier. Now, we're going to dive into some alternative theories. It is admittedly a little difficult to believe that one man, while apparently on his lunch break, assaulted and murdered three women, dragged their bodies away, and cleaned himself up in well enough time to return to work with no more than a few scratches on his face. At the very least, one would expect him to have some sort of help. Pending our source, it was either 1982 or 1983 when an elderly woman made a deathbed confession to Chicago Police Sergeant Mark Gibson stating she and her friends were responsible for the three women's deaths. In 2006, he described the confession in an affidavit. The elderly woman had been at the park with her friends when things got out of hand. She could say people were murdered and the victims' bodies were dragged, but that's as far as she got. The interview came to a sudden halt when the suspect's daughters intervened, saying their mother had lost her mind. There was no mention of further investigation into her claims, and this theory quickly went cold. 
Three other men were suspects at some point. Two were reportedly overheard referring to the murders on the phone, and the third was allegedly seen throwing a pair of bloodied overalls. Lastly, and my favorite, even if there isn't any evidence to support the claim, there is a theory that these murders were tied to the Mafia. These women were the wives of wealthy Chicago businessmen, after all. Who knows what their husbands may have really been into. I know it's a little out there, but hey, it's the cases where you have to consider every possibility, you know? The media sensationalized this case and changed the town's culture. It went from being a kind place where everybody left their doors unlocked to the type of place where everyone ensured their windows were locked at all times, their sense of security was tarnished, and nobody felt safe. Headlines included shocking titles such as Triple Killer Tells All and Starved Rock Confession. The once peaceful park was suddenly referred to as the Canyon of Death, and people went to great length just to avoid the area. The lodge went from regularly booking rooms to barely being filled, and the community was split as to whether Wager was innocent or guilty. HBO even made a docuseries about the case called The Murders of Starved Rock, which ends on a note of mystery just before the DNA results were returned. With so much recent activity in the case, perhaps they're waiting for enough material to have a second season. And there we have it. The Starved Rock State Park Murders. So, what do you think? Is Chester Wager an innocent man who finally gained his freedom, or a sadistic killer? Do you believe his confession was purely motivated by a corrupt police force? Is there any theory you believe in more than the others? Let me know in the comments, but don't forget to do all that stuff on those buttons, and definitely, I mean, don't forget to subscribe if you're new, alright? Because I have eyes everywhere. Shrek's eyes. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, you know what to do. I upload videos almost every single day on all things natural and supernatural. If you have a case suggestion, be sure to send it in at swampdweller.net or comment it in the comments down below. I'd love to see what you guys have on your mind. Let me know your thoughts on this case and I'll see you soon with another creepy episode.